on this episode of AvTalk, we have jetpacks, and we have giant bunches of helium balloons, and we have John Ostrower joining us to tell us more about the recent problems with the 787. Hello and welcome to episode 93 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, and how is March 558th treating you? Oh, it is treating me, oh, just absolutely fine. Today's the 9th of September, which means it's the second day of Zool, as we I don't are know calling what that it. Means. Zool Z- is the, the, the bad guy from Ghostbusters. Right? Correct. Zool is Zoom School, as we've taken it to call it. So I don't it is now- need to call it Ghostbusters. It, you do, well, I mean, that might help. It's, it's too late. I already placed the call. <laughs> I don't know how to hang up. It's going well, I think, about as well as can be expected for you know having uh, kindergarten at home while working from home, while having your wife work from home, while having also young children running around the house. So it you know it thing, things are fine. It's fine, fine. just fine. How are, you how are you speaking as if that's like <laughs> the, the, that gif when everything's actually on fire around you? Yeah, that, yes, that is correct. Ah, yes. like the West Coast. That Yeah. yeah. It, it, not quite that bad here, you know, because it, it, nothing's on fire at the moment. But I'm not, I don't want to tempt any fate. I'm, I don't, I don't want to, you the, can't the wrath of the that. thing high up on high the top of the whatever. How are you, sir? Fine. I think it's still March though. I have it's, no evidence to the it contrary. It sure feels like it. So, still haven't gone anywhere near an airplane since March. Work is work, and now I'm, I'm still here doing my thing. All right then. So, like I mentioned, it's the we're recording on the 9th of September, and that puts us uh, roughly a week past the end of August, where things we found are stopped getting better. I guess uh, is the yeah. Is, is the way to put it. So, you know, from the low on the 12th of April, we've seen a rise in traffic levels. And we ended the month of August, you know, 45% of 2019, of, of August 2019, uh, as far as commercial traffic levels were concerned. So, not great. Uh, no. Things, we, things we, flattened out. Um, you know, we've talked about keeping an eye on things, hoping that the summer would lead to a bit stronger recovery and then push through into fall. We haven't seen the traffic in at the beginning of the fall schedule materialize. And, and so there's a good chance that week over week, we could see traffic fall throughout the rest of the year outside of spikes for for a certain holiday period, if people decide that they're going to be traveling again, but we don't know what that's going to look like as as the as the season develops. But uh, August, you know, flattened out and not in a great way. And then the the holiday weekend we just had here in the United States this past weekend, traffic almost eclipsed a million passengers screened in the U.S. for the first time since let's see, since March sixteenth, where it dropped off quite amazingly beyond that. It went from 1.2 million uh, passengers screened on March 16th to just basically a quarter of a million a a week later. So getting up to a million would have been at least some resemblance of of what we used to have. A symbolic victory, perhaps. A symbolic victory. We are not there yet. We have here in New York, we have twice as many people riding the subway alone than we have the TSA screening passengers nationwide now. Yesterday, the Tuesday after the holiday weekend, there were 704,000 passengers screened, which is just about right back where we were before the holiday weekend. So this is typically a rather lull part of the year between the end of the summer and really Thanksgiving here in the US and then the the holidays towards the end of the year for the entire world. So this is going to be not great the next few months. And we're already seeing a few airlines pare back their schedule quite dramatically to match that new reality that the the comeback is not happening. Yeah, the the return of travel besides 
leisure travel. So, so business travel, you know, and, and folks moving around outside of taking, you know, uh, vacation or visiting their their friends and relatives. That's not materialized. No, it's uh, not. Corporate happening. travel is still nil, and so what we're going to see over the next few months, I think, is going to reflect that, especially in the U.S. Europe, a little different. Asia, quite different, as, as things there have have gotten much better, much faster. But I, I think you know we're still globally nowhere near 2019 levels and won't be for for some time. The other things being affected are uh, you know aircraft deliveries. We got those numbers this week as well and, and looking at you know Airbus and Boeing numbers, Airbus 39 deliveries, one order, which was Jason ordering his new uh, ACJ A320neo. Yeah, uh, prices so, have finally come down enough where I can get my own plane. Yeah. And then Boeing delivering 13 aircraft, but taking eight orders. That's interesting. Who were the eight? I hadn't heard that. They picked up five 737 MAX orders, and they picked up three 777F orders. Oh, were those the Polish airline ordering the MAXs that we talked about last time? In addition to... So there was the... Yes, the, the Enter Air, and then there was one other, I think. There was an airline that ordered one of them, and, and I forget which airline that was. But we may have talked about that in, in the previous episode, plus the three triple seven F orders. But moving up, but still not. I mean, I was actually, you know, in putting things together for the show. I, I was, you know, put in, you know, uh, Boeing August uh, deliveries, and a, a Reuters article from last year came up. And they were talking about how, how orders or deliveries were down forty percent, you know, already. And I was like, "Oh, that doesn't seem terrible." And then I looked at the date, and it was September twenty nineteen. If only they knew. Yeah. So uh, not not great. Still, no. still not great. Um, but no, we are there are some glimmers of hope. Just now, a few minutes ago. Uh, a Delta 767-400 that had been stranded in uh, Guangzhou, China after it had interior modifications done and kind of got stuck there, just took off back uh, heading east after 204 days of sitting on the ground there looking kind of derelict. So that's- well, how about that? That's nice. I'll take what I can get these days. Yeah. How about a guy in a jetpack at LAX? Can we take that? I don't believe you. <laughs> I so this was last week or yeah last Sunday and the pilot of American 1997 flying from Newark to Los Angeles cues the the radio and, and says tower American 1997 we got a guy in a jetpack at about 3000 feet and the tower says say what now huh very calmly, and they report, you know, three thousand feet at about, you know, about uh, three hundred yards off off the aircraft, and a following aircraft says, "Yeah, we also see a guy in a jetpack," and and a third aircraft is, you know, didn't didn't see him, but but they were looking. Guy so, on a jetpack. Yeah. Hmm. I would ordinarily throw that out as nonsense if there was one report, but two reports. Two reports. Uh, I wonder if the second pilot was on the same frequency and heard the first pilot say that and, and just kind of went with it. Or if they came in later and hadn't heard that, that would be interesting. Because it's kind of, it influences your, your thought process if you hear, oh, a guy on a jetpack and you see something and you're like, oh, it must be a guy on a jetpack. I don't, but guy in a jetpack's really specific, though. It is really specific. I mean, usually you hear, oh, we spotted a drone, but it, 99 times out of 100, it turns out to be a seagull or something. Small aircraft or something like that. But, but guy in a jetpack is really, I mean, that's really specific. So if you have seen a guy on a jetpack flying around Southern California, please, uh, please write in. I was thinking about this the other day. Like, th this has to be one of those things where it's like a, a cop show thing where they they go and look at receipts to see who bought you know the the duct tape and that ends up being can the you killer. buy a jetpack well that's what i'm saying like how many people have bought a jet it can't be that hard to track down everyone who's purchased a jetpack 
and, and be like, where were you with your jetpack last Sunday? I got nothing. The alternative it, it's being one way of some avoiding guy the built during a, a jetpack in his, in his garage, which I guess would obviously be a much better story. So sure. it, I, I don't know. I, I, I got, got nothing. nothing. I got nothing. Speaking of getting nothing, the other randomly, fascinatingly odd aviation event last week is David Blaine, who who's known for his, Jason's a huge fan, I guess endurance. I don't, I don't even know what you, he's a magician and illusionist, but he also does things like sits in a tank of water upside down for 20 minutes or whatever. He can hold his breath for a really long time. All of this to say is that he attached himself to a bunch of balloons, a la the movie Up, and they carried him up to 25,000 feet and he parachuted down. It, neat. But why? D- who cares? Neat. Don't really care about that. What I care about is the fact that they attached an ADSB transponder to a bunch of helium balloons. I suspect that you are the one who inputted bunch of balloons as aircraft type. Am I right about that? I like to ensure that the database is as accurate as possible. There you go. Bunch of balloons. I mean, yeah, putting the ADSB transponder on there is cool and also, you know, practical so someone doesn't fly into him because he did take off or launch we'll rise call it launch. from an active rise. airport with, with GA aircraft yeah, coming in yeah. and out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so have not heard any of the ATC transmissions for the aircraft coming in or going out. Did they have to did ATC have to warn aircraft caution guy on balloon passing through ten thousand or what what did that sound like? You know what I don't know. I do know that his team was coordinating with air traffic control because they they had to request clearance to go above eighteen thousand feet. So that clearance was requested and granted. I don't know what frequency they were on. That's a good question to, uh, to do find out. Do I even out. want to know why this was done? What it doesn't what matter. That's not, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story a, is that they the, who was it? Philip Baumgartner, who literally jumped out of space, who was hauled up into space on a balloon and jumped out with a parachute. That's impressive. Being lifted off the ground with a bunch of balloons and parachuting down. Why is that a, a magic trick or illusion? Well, I don't think it was an illusion or a man. I think it was a, I guess you call it a stunt or, or something. I don't know. I don't even know what you call it. But my point with all of this was it was a neat thing to watch for, you know, a few minutes. It, it was fun to see the the balloons on, on Fly Radar 24. And the funniest thing to me was that one of the balloons actually had the NREG stamped on it. <laughs> And I just thought that was funny. So nice. not a you know not a huge thing. I mean, I'll take it. It's an aviation adjacent exactly. thing that isn't horrible right now. So exactly, hey, I'm just it's a win. You you asked me for some good news. I got you a guy in a jetpack and David Blaine and a bunch of balloons. Ordinarily, this would be a, a great episode, <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it? Though. So let's see what else happened. So I mean, kind of you know in the good news ish. Depending on how we want to, you know, look at it, the good the entry into good news. I think we can use it as that is that um, LL, uh, the Israeli airline, completed its first flight to the United Arab Emirates. So that is that is good news. Interesting and also good news as far as you know airspace usage and utilization is concerned is that Saudi Arabia allowed them to transit their airspace en route and has since in in the past few days said that or or allowed other uh, flights between the two two countries to to take place. So, I mean, that's – I think that's something. Yay for flights being able to take a more direct route and burning far less fuel. I, I wish that was the case through the entire world. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about this particular news item. There you go. It started with bad news, but now there's a resolution here. The A350 panel that was subject to liquid spillage has been redesigned. Well, so that's the, good. That, that center console has been redesigned by Airbus. Yeah. So. so for some background here, this was the 
incident where uh, pilots up on the flight deck happened to accidentally spill some liquid because there just wasn't really uh, enough cup holder space up front. Uh, if they spilled it in the uh, the throttle quadrant the, area, the cup holder. So this is one of those things where where it's like uh, measuring in you know measuring in metric, but programming in feet. The the cup holders were not designed to hold larger cups of liquid. No, let's just say they it was designed by French people drinking French sized drinks, and you have American sized people drinking American sized drinks. It's BMW had the same issue in its cars for a long time before it begrudgingly put cup holders into its cars in the early 2000s. So we've seen this before. But in this particular instance, if you spilled a drink in your BMW, you made things sticky. If you spilled a drink in your A350, you potentially crashed the airplane by shutting off the engines, which is uh, bad. You don't want to do that. Not something you want to have happen. No. So when I say crash the airplane, I, I literally mean there were multiple instances of spilling on the console resulting in uh, basically a short which ended up turning off one of the two engines with the inability to actually relight that engine. And back in late April, Airbus put out a, a very patchworky solution where they literally put a plastic cover over the throttle quadrant. So if you spilled a drink, you would only dirty the uh, plastic cover. But now there's a real solution. They are basically waterproofing that section is what I'm told. It it sounds like that that that's what's happening, along with some some other slight modifications to ensure that if there is anything spilled there, it it doesn't affect the the engines in in the same way. But also the the continued guidance is uh, don't spill your drink. That's good. That's yeah, words to live by. Words to live by indeed. Good sir, should we take a quick break and then come back and discuss the most recent 787 news? Which piece of news? You're going to have to be more specific. Yes. It, well, and we will be very specific because we'll be joined by uh, John Ostrauer, the editor-in-chief of The Air Current, who's going to fill us in. So stay with us for just a moment and we'll be right back. Welcome back. We are once again joined by the Air Currents Editor-in-Chief, John Ostrauer, who is a frequent guest on the program. We're going to have to get him some sort of uh, you know special gift or something like that for, for coming back so often. But Ten appearances and he gets a free sub. There you go. We've asked John to come and talk to us about his recent reporting and, and reporting by others about the new issues affecting the Boeing 787s. So John, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. Thanks thanks for you know there seems to be ample news to talk about this year and and every year. So it's yeah, uh, yeah. kind of full employment for aerospace journalists these days. So I guess we should just start at the very base of things is what is happening with the 787s now. So on August 27th, the year current reported that Boeing had pulled eight 787s, recently built 787s, from service. And the reason they did that was because of a, uh, a combination of two quality issues found in the join of the aft fuselage, where two carbon fiber barrels meet together and are mated with the aft pressure bulkhead, which caps the back of the pressurized passenger cabin. And what they found was that uh, the combination of, of two issues, number number one was incorrectly sized shims, which fit into to, to, uh, structure to make them more sturdy and to close any gaps when they're fastened, also combined with a, a roughness in the surface texture of the inner side of the barrel. So together, those two things actually undermine the strength of the barrel and to a point where the aircraft structure may not, to Boeing's analysis, withstand what's known as limit loads, which is the force, which is the maximum force that that a an airplane would ever experience in service. Separately, both are issues of manufacturing quality, but they still meet limit load. Together, they do not. So those eight airplanes got immediately pulled from service. What we've now we've now seen since then 
is that the FAA has launched uh, an investigation into uh, quality discrepancies in the manufacturing of, of the 787. And Boeing on the 8th of September said that they were actually looking at an additional quality issue with how horizontal stabilizers on the airplane were actually manufactured. And that actually may uh, affect more than 890 787s potentially as far as inspections and, and possible rework. So it's, it is a been sort of a, you know, peeling back of the onion, so to speak, of of issues for uh, you know to discussing looking at the the, the the manufacturing of the seven eight seven and and what that ultimately means for for Boeing it means for the fleet and means you know going forward so at this point we don't have a whole heck of a lot of answers aside from the fact that they they need to determine how many airplanes are actually affected by by all these problems and then then what so. I want to kind of unpack each one of these quality issues in turn. And and for my own, I guess, curiosity, when we're talking about shims, are, are we talking about, you know, the kind of thing that you see used to frame out a door, just a, a piece of material that adjusts the alignment of something? Or is this much more technically complicated than I'm imagining? You know, the fundamentals are kind of the same. You know, certainly when you... so. The 787 was supposed to be an airplane that didn't need shims at all, actually. So it, the carbon fiber manufacturing was going to produce a, a structure that was so precise that when every, all the pieces fit together, you just wouldn't need these engineered gap fillers to, to slide into the structure to, to, to fill it out. So when, they, when Boeing realized they actually had to do that, there was a very manual process for doing that. And it was very time-consuming and, and, and very tedious. And so effectively, if you don't put a shim in or you put the wrong shim in, you have – then you have to drill through the structure and fasten it. But if you don't have the shim right, when you put the fastener in, there is a, a risk that the fastener will will effectively – it's called sucking up a gap. And look, if, you, if you're building IKEA furniture and you're using particle board, that's fine. You know, you can just – you can tighten that thing and it just kind of swishes together. You can't do that on an airplane. And because if you do it on an airplane, it's what's called putting a preload on the structure. And effectively, you're, you're, you're saying the, 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 the normal expected loads that happen in flight will be carried in a different way than you'd expect compared to manufacturing it properly. So when, if you suck up that gap, the risk is that it fatigues in a way that's unexpected. And that can, that can be, that can cause cracks and that can cause potential failure. But that's, that is ultimately why shimming is so important because it sets the structure as it was designed to be set. So absent that, that's the risk that you're, that you now face. It is a, is a long-term problem that, that can really crop up down the line, not an immediate safety of threat issue. So really the, these are, these are issues that are not, you know, the, the piece doesn't work. It's, it's more so that these are issues that are affect, become, have an outsized effect as the aircraft ages. Precisely, precisely. And, and in this particular case, the way that the shims were built, there was a maximum setting in the software that was supposed to be, that was set by default. And uh, by default, based on the the, engine, the approved engineering, and then there was a measurement made through a laser system called the, through predictive shimming, and the system didn't register or didn't properly process the fact that it needed a larger shim because of the the, the software having a different default setting. It was very it's a small it's a small software glitch, but you know, but, they, but Boeing also knows and understands why, uh, you know the population of, of affected airplanes because of the manufacturing data that they have. The second issue, which is which is the one that has has caused a lot more heartburn here in terms of what happens to the fleet, is that the skin smoothness at the join. So you know, think of think of you know putting you know your hands flat but side by side. Um, that that's like one one skin of one side of the barrel, a fuselage barrel, and and next to another, and what you have is called a splice plate. So it's like putting a, you know, for illustrative purposes, like putting a, um, 
like a notebook on top of your, top of your hands. And, and, and effectively what, what, what you do is you fasten straight through the notebook and through ideally through your hands. This would be very painful if you were to do it in real life, but that becomes the join it, it, for illustrative purposes here. But the smoothness of your hand in this particular case is one cert, one inner surface of the fuselage has to be within a certain tolerance or it undermines the, how well the shims, as we just talked about, go into, go into that, that surface and fill out those gaps. Because if it's, if it's jagged or rough, those ridges will end up carrying the load unevenly and it will sit on those little ridges. So it will undermine the strength of the, of the shim, no matter how quickly it is, it is manufactured. But so when you put the shim issue and the skin smoothness issue together, you get it, you get a big problem. But again, when we're saying, when we're saying rough, I mean, we're talking about rough in, in the parlance of, you know, aircraft component tolerances. We're not talking about like feeling like sandpaper rough, right? This is the, this is the incredible thing about, about aerospace manufacturing. I mean, there are so many people that, that, that try to think about aerospace manufacturing in the same way as automotive or, or, or other industries. The tolerances required in, in aerospace manufacturing are so fantastically precise that this is why it requires such an intense, persistent level of quality assurance. We're talking about five, five, one thousandths of an inch variation. So that's 0.005 inches of, of variation that can cause this problem. And it's achievable. It's an achievable level of precision because Boeing has Boeing designed it that way. And, and, and the one thing that they, that they, that, you know, the one thing that no one can, can ever take from Boeing is the fact that they figured out how to do it and they figured out how to make composite manufacturing on a large scale work at, you know, as, as, as high as, as you know, 10, 12, 14 airplane, you know, wide body airplanes per month. That's incredible. And they could do that because they understood how the material worked. That the problem is, in this case, that the variations that the, that they were measuring were they don't have a lot of data on that. They have a data on part of the skin, but they don't have it on other another part that is actually under a row of fasteners. What Boeing was doing, they're essentially using the edge that they were measuring as representative. So that told them whether or not they believed that the shim was going to be right through the entire join because there's part of the join you just can't reach. So that's, that's the amazing thing about all this. We're talking about such incredible levels of precision here. So now what has to happen is Boeing has to go inside these eight airplanes and figure out what actually is the skin smoothness of these airplanes? And, and if they're, and if it comes back that they're smoother than they expected and everything's okay, they can make a, a, a pretty good case to the FAA that they don't need to have widespread immediate inspections and, and, or any rework. But if the opposite is true, that's going to be a hard case to make is what my, my sources are, are telling me. So basically they were taking spot samples and kind of extrapolating that for I guess an average over the entire aircraft. Is that what was happening? Not over an entire aircraft, but it, but for for the purposes of that that particular join. By the way, that that's really common. Taking a taking a sample, a spot sample is is very is very common. The thing is, all of this assembly put together assumes that certain tolerances are are, are in place. That, that certain there's certain and that's you know one of those is is that five one thousandths of an inch requirement. The smoothness of of the surface. You know, all of the predictability of, of how they're manufacturing this at a, at a high rate as they are is based upon that all these pieces are in place. You can't remove one piece and have confidence that you can do it as fast as you thought you'd be able to. So you have to you have to be able to show. And one thing, you know, I think you can be able to show a consistent, reliable, stable, accurate process because, you know, back in early 2019, when these airplanes were being manufactured, uh, Boeing was actually making the case they didn't need as many quality inspectors, and they said it because, well, they, they intuitive. They were like, "Well, we understand the st- these stable, repeatable processes, and we know that that what we're looking at is accurate." And they actually, in the piece that they that this appeared in, it was it was uh, you know by Dominic Gates in the Seattle Times. 
they actually used shims as an example, a new technology that they had. And this is this was right in between the two Max crashes. It was sort of a calm in the eye of the storm. And all of these airplanes were built during that period as they're as they're literally justifying this this change in, in stable processes, you know, that you don't need as much oversight because they're so stable. You know, and, and this particular join was one of those very understood to be stable, accurate processes. And what we've seen, and the concern I think that the FAA has as they dig into their investigation is that this was not stable. And it and there's a concern that that it was not accurate in terms of how they were measuring it and, and how they were accounting for the quality here. So that's that's what we're getting into. I think it's it it's really important to to also put into context that this is not an immediate safety of flight issue. This is ultimately a quality issue for the long term longevity of the uh, and uh, you know longevity of the airplanes and whatever maintenance action that's taken down the road. But you know, I think what we what we've seen is you know we saw the the challenge of new technology when the eight seven first came out and the teething issues that came along there and the grounding are related to the battery and then you saw in 2019, 2018, 2019, the crashes with the MAX, which is which related to how to evolve existing older technology to a to a modern standard. Now we have a third category, which is sort of the manufacturing side of it. And and how and how that is played out in terms of the, the quality of the product that, that that Boeing is is manufacturing and delivering. You know, th- these are three very different categories, but ultimately the issue with the Max and the 87 at the point of grounding in 2013 was that those were those were new products. Yes, the Max is, was an evolved product, but it's a new, but fundamentally it's it's these are new, newly built airplanes. You know, what we what we now find is that as, as is that we see an existing technology, the 87, is now a mature airplane. You know, there were only 50 airplanes in service when it was grounded in 2013. There are almost a thousand, you know, sitting here in uh, in 2020. And so, you know, you, you, the scale you're dealing with is is much larger. So, John, tell me what are some of the the possible scenarios as far as the 787 program is concerned at the moment. I know we don't know a lot yet but but where could things kind of go from here well first you know boeing has to begin to unzip those eight airplanes and they have to get in get inside and figure out what what actually is the the situation with the shims and and the the smoothness in the skin in the skin fuselage fuselage join rather and so that'll be very telling i think that'll provide the basis for a lot of data for what comes next the FAA is going to continue their investigation. Boeing has said that they have slowed deliveries to do inspections. You know what happens from here. I think it it's going to be very interesting to watch because you know is the, are there other quality issues that 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 crop up that are that have either not been disclosed or reported that that end up being part of what what feels a bit like a drip drip at this point. So I think well. It- it certainly felt like that with the Max, at least. How many times did we hear about a, yet another software issue once they started peeling back those layers of the onion? You never want to open an airplane because if you go looking for something, you're going to find something. And that's not a, a reason not to do it. It's just the, the reality of what happens when you start start opening things up. And this must be a pretty dramatic opening up. This is not going to be a quick process. I mean, how do you even get down that deep? Into to get to that layer of the aircraft from I'm assuming they're doing it from the inside, so they have to rip the entire cabin out, the sidewalls, insulation, ductwork. They're basically going to have to deconstruct this aircraft before they can inspect it and put it back together. So I, I will play play dumb on this one because I genuinely don't know what the process is. But Boeing has said it's it's in the ballpark of two weeks or so per airplane. But like as you as you said, I mean, getting to this join is really tough because again, you're 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 at the aft pressure bulkhead, so you're you're dealing with a with a very you're dealing with a, stru- a major piece of structure here, so, and you're dealing with a lot of other things going on around there, and you're dealing with the circumference of the join. So how do you get there? And that's one of the questions that I have at this point, and you know what what's entailed in in terms of you know unzipping the whole thing and, and figuring out how it all how it all fits together, or or I should say doesn't start or starts fitting together. So there's been, I want to kind of widen this out now. Boeing has begun a 
process of determining whether or not it's feasible to produce the 787 in one facility. Does this news affect that study at all or or should it? So it's worth mentioning that that the facility that, that's in question here feeds both assembly lines. It feeds Everett and it feeds Charleston. There, so there's a, there's a, the final assembly line in Washington State and one in South Carolina, and then there are there are uh, facilities that fabricate these barrels in South Carolina next to the final assembly line, which predated the opening of the 2012 uh, expansion with the, with the uh, with the South Carolina final assembly line itself. In this particular case, the big question is going to be what comes of of the investigation and whether or not there are more uh, systemic concerns around the one thing that has been documented about about South Carolina manufacturing and the manufacturing that's gone on in Charleston is that the FAA has has noted problems and each time Boeing says yes we we have fixed this it is not a problem and then another problem crops up and this has been several times over the last 10 plus years and so the question becomes it is does that begin to sway that decision. I mean, it's it's a it, you know. I mean, the FAA doesn't like getting involved in 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 decisions around where something is built or where what a what a what a private business does with their industrial plan. As long all they care about is that it's being done in a in a way that's consistent with it with with the design and and federal regulations. Does it begin to affect it? There is almost no way that it's not going to have some impact on it. That impact might be disregarded. In the, in the final in the final analysis, but it will absolutely be part of the discussion. There's no way that it's not going to be. The the question is is there are those in who are part of decision making going to look at this and say, hey, well, it's just this is cropping up now because it's it's sour grapes because one is a union facility and one is not, and so we can disregard that, or is or is something saying, well, hey, you know, this is really serious and this is cropping up, and we've pulled eight airplanes out of service. You know, what are we actually going to do to fix this and why is this happening? And you don't want to get into a situation where the FAA is saying, okay, stop or we'll say stop again. And that ultimately undermines their authority to be a regulator and to and to have oversight here. So, you know, does the FAA take greater steps in, in terms of oversight in, in, in Charleston? Do they start looking at the, the delegated authority across Boeing's manufacturing if this ends up not being the case? So, yes, it, it's absolutely going to be something that that's going to be important to watch as as you know we get closer to a decision toward potentially consolidating seven eight seven entirely to South Carolina, which I would note has always been Boeing's ambition. That's that was always sort of their how they envisioned the role of of, of South Carolina in their manufacturing plan. So, I mean, the the study then is really just a making sure that we can actually do it, not a should we do it. That's been my understanding. It's it's never been a should. It's it's can we, and part of that was related to can you build a dash eight, uh, the smallest seventy seven dash eight in in South Carolina. They haven't done that for several hundred airplanes since about about twenty sixteen, and. Can it accommodate the rates that you would theoretically need when air travel ends up coming back to a level that is approximating where it was at the end of 2019? And so these are these are the questions that that really are being asked right now. It's really as you as you put it, it's a it's a can we rather than should we? I think that you know looking at the program and the history of the 787, and John, you you, you kind of mentioned this of being fearful of how many shoes can drop. And so, you know, as they move through this, you know, kind of their view and also the FAA's investigation, I mean, it it doesn't have me fearful necessarily, but uh, I'm just wondering, you know, when, where are all the shoes? I think that's exactly the right question. I, I know that certainly FAA wants that answer. And look, I think, I think Boeing wants that answer. You know, I, I think that's, that, it is not good for for them and their ability to rebuild trust in in their engineering and their manufacturing and their and their products if this keeps cropping up you know they want to build a consistent safe product the the goal is to make sure that 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 they are properly addressing systemically at a, at a you know a really root cause level what is causing 
these problems in the first place. And I think that's, you know, if you can't figure it out yourself, that's where that's where a regulator comes in. This is probably a much larger conversation, this question, but do you think this is possible to regain the trust with the current management and leadership at Boeing? We really haven't seen much change since all of these issues cropped up. So you've got a you've got a company that that is that effectively has executed the same strategy consistently throughout the the life of the time that I've been covering the company. So at least since 2007, 2008. And it's been variations on on, on a theme in a lot of respects. And the one aspect that I think has been consistent throughout all of these episodes whether it was, you know, original 87 development 87 teething, max, max decision, you know, max production, max grounding crashes, where we are now, that I don't believe there's ever been the required uh, strategic soul searching that was necessary to begin to understand when you when you see it stacked up like that, in that kind of sequence, you ask, what is what is going on here? Because it's not just execution that that produces this over and over again. Yes, it is execution, but there's something in in how you're structured or how you're how you've chosen to run the company. It would seem that is causing this. So, is it the is has there been a change of leadership among the top ranks of Boeing in in Chicago over the the, the last fifteen years? Certainly different people, but ultimately it's the it's the same strategy. John, one last question before before we let you go. I know the FAA is very hesitant to you know ever say how long these things will take, but have they hinted at how lengthy this investigation is likely to be? Uh, they haven't. They haven't, and and I think a lot of a lot of that is going to be driven by what Boeing finds when they open up those eight airplanes. Best case scenario for everyone really is that they open up the airplanes. They say, okay, this is actually. Not a thing that that really requires a lot of attention. It's you know within the tolerances that we thought it would be. We're going to close them back up and 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 go from there, and and things kind of you know settle. Or it becomes a much lengthier investigation if they find that there are severe issues there. Yeah, precisely. I mean, it's you know what action they end up taking or recommending across of the fleet, across the manufacturing. Footprint of Boeing. That's going to be the the big out question here, and that, that I think we're going to get answered in the in the not too distant future. But I think it's going to take a little bit to get those answers. John Ostrauer, the editor in chief of the Air Current, one of the premier aviation publications these days, breaking news left and right. I hope John, you're at least getting a little bit of sleep. But I appreciate you sitting down and kind of explaining the significance of this and 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 the latest on the the seven eight seven. Thanks again so much for joining the program. Thank you, John. Good to be with you guys as always. Thanks. Welcome back and. Another illuminating, if unsatisfactory, conversation with John? There is never an an end to these conversations. It's always, we'll see. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And we're still seeing. (laughs) And and we are indeed still seeing. Yeah, so again, we'll, we'll see. This week... The European Union Aviation Safety Agency is rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? Though uh, is testing the seven three seven Max because of COVID, they are embarking in the airplane in Vancouver and then flying it in the normal places in Washington State as. The FAA and Boeing has been flight testing it, but because of the travel restrictions and things like that, the representatives of EASA are getting on the plane in Vancouver and then flying. But that is happening this week. It is, again, the 737 MAX 7 test aircraft that they've been doing, November 7201S, and that flying will continue Throughout the week, it should be wrapped up by the time the podcast comes out, but they've done flights uh, beginning Tuesday and, and now Wednesday. 
the one bit of news that doesn't really mean much at the moment to Jason or I, because we haven't been on a plane since February and March, but for those of you that are booking tickets and and flying, there have been major changes to how U.S. airlines are structuring their change fees, which is to say that the big three and then others to follow have made them go away. That's good, at least partially, not not totally. We're only speaking uh, domestically, except for Hawaiian, which has a limited international network. So that's uh, system-wide for them. But United actually started to get the ball rolling on this, which is unusual to say the least. But United came out and said, we're going to permanently, permanently is only for so long as they want to be doing this, but they are permanently removing the change fee for main cabin, or I guess economy for United on domestic flights. So you can change your flight if the flight is, uh, if you need to, you can change the date. I don't know if you can change the destination, but there are a couple nuances here. With United, if the new ticket is of a lesser value than your original ticket, you lose that value. So if you bought a $500 ticket, your new fare is $300, you, I believe you lose those $200. American announced after United, which again, shocking because Americans usually the last to do anything. They're brought in kicking and screaming. American will actually issue a certificate for the difference, I believe, up to a certain amount. I think that might be $200 or I might be making that up. And they're actually also waiving standby fees, which I think is the most egregious and most passenger unfriendly fee out there. So now if uh, I think on both United and American, if you want to take an earlier flight and you happen to be at the airport, you can now be put on the standby list for free, which is awesome. That is something Delta is actually not doing, which is surprising. Alaska has also removed change fees. Uh, The only major airline in the US that you would expect to follow up and do this is JetBlue, and they, they have not so far. So we're still waiting to see if that change is happening. But it really now makes the difference between basic economy, which still has change fees across all the airlines, and regular economy that much more compelling. And I think they may – the case could be made that airlines will make up the difference here by passengers booking full economy rather than basic economy where those change fees used to bring in the cash. Uh, So we'll see how that balances out. But that's a – Big deal for us in the U.S. Not that it matters now, like you said, Ian, because I'm not flying anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, it, the the interesting thing is that some international airlines have flat out rejected. I know, I know, Qantas just said no, that we're not going to do that, and and I can't remember which other airline said that they're also not going to follow suit. But it'll be interesting to see if other airlines elsewhere do follow any of these changes. But again, doesn't matter for the most part. It will uh, matter. Uh, at some point, we'll, we'll be flying again and this will unless, be a big deal unless, don't, no, no. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying unless they decide that change fees are back. Yeah, unless they come back and they most certainly will at some point where it's advantageous for the airlines to do it again. It will happen. They will come back. Nothing in this industry is permanent. Let us end the show with... Two things. One, we've talked about before many, many, many times. And as we get closer to the day, I'm sure we'll discuss it in a future episode. But the new Berlin airport is set to open. They've announced, eh? They've announced the airlines that will be landing in tandem on the two runways together. An EasyJet flight and a Lufthansa flight will be arriving at the exact same time as the airport is set to open. They also announced today that they need 300 million euros to stay afloat. Whoops. To be fair, this is not due to anything that the airport, the the new airport has or has not done on its own. This is due to the fact that the airport authority has had, like every other airport authority right now, and transit agency and airline and business, they have no money coming in. Uh, So it's not really the curse of, Brandenburg on its own, but it's certainly related. Yeah, it, it's yes, yeah. the 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 three hundred million euros is is not uh, not of their doing. If you have three hundred million euros and would like to support the new Berlin airport, uh, <laughs> write a check and send it in. 
sure that one of our listeners is going to get right on that. To close the show, we, we've got some good news. A Cessna successfully landed on highway and departed the highway, and that's all I've got. That's it. They ran out of gas. They landed. They put more gas in the plane. They took off. I have questions. I have so many questions. I have questions. So we only know about this usually – I mean an aircraft landing on a highway is not all that – out of the ordinary, it happens from time to time, but usually you don't see how that aircraft leaves the highway. Uh, here in New York, at least, if it, I think it's a state law, if that an aircraft lands on state property, they actually have to chop it up because I know aircraft have landed on beaches before, and although they can take off, they, they do not take off. Uh, but in this case, they, they literally gassed up the plane, rolled down the the highway right before a major interchange and, and were on their way. And it was very surreal looking because they had a police escort behind them while traffic in the other direction on the other side of the grassy median was flowing like normal. So you have these people driving in the other direction and a little Cessna 172 is coming right at them. It was uh, flowing like normal until they saw the plane. Yeah, I am shocked that <laughs> they had that much police presence and none of them thought, hey, maybe we should stop traffic in the other direction. Just so, for a minute. Uh, if a plane is heading right towards these people, they don't freak out. Or, you know, if the plane runs out of gas again. But this raises questions. I'd imagine this pilot is going to get a call from the FAA very soon on how did this happen? Because it's one thing for an aircraft to run out of fuel if there's a fuel leak or if there's weather impacting their, their ability to land or navigate. But this aircraft is only in the air for about 20 minutes total. They had just taken off. And obviously, there was not a fuel leak because they were able to gas up and, and fly back out. So is it possible that this pilot took off without fueling up or, or even checking the gauges? That, that has to be the only way this happened, right? I mean, I suppose anything's possible. Maybe it was a, a question of measurements or, or they didn't tap on the fuel gauge hard enough to to make sure that there was fuel in there. I I, I honestly don't know. I have questions I, and I'm sure the FAA will mirror those I'm, same questions. I'm sure the FAA also has questions. But, but a happy ending, they were able to guess up and go. And now it is time for us to go. Yes, I have a date with some pasta and meatballs. There you go. This has been episode 93 of AFTALK. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.